Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. Well, it's always a privilege to be with you here at Solid Word. Um, I believe it's my fourth time, but I don't count very well anymore, so I'm not sure. But uh, delightful connections over the years, and always a delight for uh, my, my wife Linda and I to come and, and be with you. We got out of our car this morning out here, and just the aroma from the trees, wasn't that glorious? The beauty of God's creation that comes through the eyes, but also the, the ears listening to the birds, and then through our noses, the smell. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, Pastor Curtis called me the other evening, um, invited me to preach, and said he was going, that, that you have just started a series in the uh, narrative about Joseph in Genesis. And I was all in. I love Joseph. Uh, I still remember a picture Bible when I was a little kid, um, and I was my imagination was grabbed by the story of Joseph, my favorite story in the Old Testament. And so I loved Joseph, I loved to preach Joseph, but before I could say, yes, I'll do it, he explained that, well, there have been two messages from Genesis 37 on Joseph, and now we're ready to start Genesis 38. Hmm. He kind of warned me the way he said it. He said, would you be willing to preach Genesis 38? What is Genesis 38? Well, Genesis 37 ends with Joseph's arrival in Egypt after he was sold to a passing caravan of traders on the way to Egypt, and they sold their brother and then the traders sold him again to Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh in Egypt. And the chapter ends, and we can't wait to get to the rest of the story. But we turn to chapter 38, and the story of Joseph has ended. Brick wall. No more Joseph. Not mentioned in the next chapter. Nothing here. And that's exactly what his brothers hoped for. They're so thrilled. They're glad to be rid of him. He's gone. Never again will we suffer daddy's favorite parading around in his fancy robe with his self-exalting dreams to share with us. No more Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. We're done with him. Genesis 38 is not about Joseph. It's about Judah. It's a one-chapter interlude in the Joseph story that doesn't even mention Joseph. And, and I tell you the temptation, and many, many pastors have succumbed to this temptation, is just skip Genesis 38. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to read it. So why mess with it? Well, the reason to mess with it is because God says all Scripture is inspired. And all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And awkward, as awkward as Genesis 38 is, it proves to be a critical piece of the larger story of God's grace and sovereign purpose to rescue the family of Jacob and even more. 
to rescue us. As our sister said a moment ago, only a good God can take bad things and work them together for our good. What a wonderful statement. So, it may be awkward, but let's open our Bibles to Genesis 38. And I'm going to read the first half, maybe a little more, and uh, then we'll unpack the rest of it as we work through the text. Would you be willing to stand for the reading of God's Word? Genesis 38, verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go unto your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Eniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock, And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them into her and went into gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, have you heard enough? (laughs) That's pretty awkward, isn't it? Uh, Maybe we need a little context. How does this intersect with the life of Joseph in the larger story of God's grace and sovereign purpose to, to save his people? There must be some connection or it wouldn't be stuck where it is. And so we go back to the Joseph story beginning in chapter 37 And we read that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. And the introduction to this section says these are the generations of Jacob. This is not the Joseph story. This is the Jacob story. Joseph happens to get the most ink, 
But this is Jacob's story, how Jacob and his family are rescued from famine and how they grow and become the foundation of a great nation, the nation Israel. But in the Jacob story, two of his sons stand out, Judah and Joseph. They're the largest two tribes. We don't know that until later. When they come out of Egypt, we find out that Judah had uh, 74,600 men aged 20 and above, plus women and children. Joseph, slightly smaller, had become two tribes of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Combined population, 72,700 men aged 20 and above. The only two tribes of over 70,000. Joseph has more print at this point, but Judah eventually will rise above him, and he needs to be introduced here because it is to Judah that Jacob said in his deathbed blessing in chapter 49, and your pastor will unpack that for you more when you get to it, but he says the scepter, the rod of imperial power and ultimate authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, not Joseph, Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now you'll recall that the first king of Israel was not from Judah, but from Benjamin, Saul. But it didn't take long for Saul to be disqualified. There's no dynasty there. But the line of kings that extends all the way to Jesus is from Judah through King David. And the conduit for the fulfillment of the greatest prophecies of all, the promises of all, not only for Israel but for the whole world, come from Judah's line through David to Jesus. In fact, just yesterday morning... My daily Bible reading, I'm amazed how often this happens as I'm preparing to preach, but my daily Bible reading, according to the plan I follow, was from 2 Samuel 7, where God says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, your throne will be established forever. That's an amazing thing. It's not the Queen of England on the throne now for almost 70 years. It's not any of our presidents, not Trump, not Biden. It's not Putin. He wants to be the king of kings and lord of lords, but he's not going to be. He's got his little time here, and he'll be exposed. Already has been. He just didn't know it yet. Zelensky's the great hero leader of the world now, but his time will pass also. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ that comes from the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through David to Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus. But this early prophecy of the generations of Jacob is given to Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And you say, you got to be kidding. Judah? Who is Judah? What are his qualifications? What does he bring to the table? Well, we should know by now, that's God's way. He takes nobodies and uses them for his glory. So, we're going to walk through the text. Uh, I'll give you my outline. It's, it's pretty simple. 
Judah's background, Judah's sins, part one, and then Judah's sons, part one, and then Judah's sins, part two, and then Judah's repentance, and then Judah's sons, part two, and then Judah's son, God's son. So the sermon is structured around sins and sons. I think you can remember that. Sins and sons. First, Judah's background. Fourth-born son of Jacob to Leah, the unloved second-choice sister of Rachel. She gave birth, Leah did, to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel had no sons. That did not help the animosity between the sisters. Judah is eventually... He's the fourth-born, so he remains that, of course, but the fourth of 12 sons of Jacob from four women, Leah six sons, Rachel two, plus their servants, Billa and Zilpah, two each. Nothing significant about Judah. Fourth-born, no chance of being a primary heir from that position in the lineup. It may be cleanup in baseball, but it's not in, in, in genealogy. And I understand that. I'm the third-born of five. I don't have the honor of the firstborn, nor the whatever the youngest gets. Don't believe those stereotypes, but we still talk about them. I'm the boring middle. I am a farm boy from Kansas. Pretty plain. Now, at this point, we know nothing about Judy, either good or bad, but a couple of background uh, uh, factors in the background change that. Speaking of sordid stories in Genesis, the first three brothers have already disgraced themselves. Chapter 35, we find that Reuben, the firstborn who would presume to be the primary heir, has had an affair with Billa, one of his father's concubine wives. That doesn't go well. Genesis 34 tells the sordid story of the next two in line, Simeon and Levi, who in revenge for their sister's rape, which certainly did call for justice, no question about that, but they decided to kill all the people of Shechem, not just the criminal, but everybody. And that didn't go well. So their blessing in chapter 49 from their father is hardly a blessing. He says to them, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And Simeon was absorbed into the tribe of Judah and just disappears. And Levi, well, became the tribe of Moses and Aaron, the priests. And so they're scattered throughout, just like this text says. Sins committed, committed decades earlier brought up before the whole family to their shame at their father's death. Up until now, there's no dirt on Judah. He's just lost in that middle child position. Maybe he can move up because of the disqualifying sins of his brothers, so maybe he's got some hope. I don't know. But there's more as we go now to Judah's sins, part one. Judah has no claim to fame, just one of the brothers. Ten of them united in their hatred of Joseph. Going along with the plan to kill Joseph, which Pastor Curtis covered a couple of weeks ago, but then Reuben steps up. You think, oh, maybe Reuben can redeem himself. He says, let us not take his life, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, do not lay a hand on him, and Reuben plans to rescue his brother and take him back home to daddy. But somehow, inexplicably, 
Reuben steps away for a bit, and Judah suggests a plan as they see a caravan of Ishmaelite traders coming. Chapter 37, 26 and 27, what profit is it? Interesting word he uses. What's in it for us? What profit is in it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Oh, that sounds so sweet, doesn't our brother, our own flesh? Let's sell him. Such compassion. So Judah's not so clean either. It's his idea to sell Joseph. It's his idea to dip the fancy robe in animal's blood to fake his death at the hands of an animal. Problem solved. We got rid of the brat. Never have to deal with him again. And nobody will ever know. Except they knew. They knew. Leaving that all behind, leaving us in suspense about what will happen to Joseph, we now get into chapter 38 and are introduced to Judah's family. Judah's sons, part one. Jacob and his family lived in Beersheba on the far south of Canaan. Uh, Judah went to the community of Adullam a little further to the south, married a Canaanite woman. No details, no ceremony. It just says he took her and went into her. No doubt these chapters are overlapping. You tell some of the Joseph story, and then you give the background of the Judah story that kind of probably covers a much larger period of time. So this probably took place before Joseph was sold to Egypt. But Judah uh, takes a Canaanite wife. They have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The boys grow up. Ur was old enough for marriage, so his father takes a wife for Ur. Her name is Tamar. But verse 7, Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight. doesn't say what he did or why he was wicked, but he was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Must have been extreme, because God doesn't kill everyone who's wicked, or none of us would be here today, would we? By a tradition later encoded in Deuteronomy 25 as leveret marriage, a younger brother was obligated to have a son by his brother's widow, who then that child, that firstborn child that is born of that union is legally the deceased brother's child to carry on his family line. Later, this is in the book of Ruth, it's, it's called the kinsman redeemer who keeps the family going. And so Onan is supposed to do that. He's commissioned by his father to do this, but he refused the responsibility. God killed him too. Still no descendants, no heir for Judah. Third son, one more chance. Sheila is supposed to fulfill this responsibility for his older brother, but Judah is fearful that somehow it's not safe to have my boys around this woman. God kills them. And so he decided that he would not do this. He said, well, he's too young. Well, maybe he was. Probably early adolescent, something like that. We're guessing on the age. But he refused to let Tamar have this boy. It was a lie. And uh, so she sent home to her father. A widow, no children, no hope. 
So many years went by, and we're already into Judah's sins, part two. Uh, Tamar, a neglected childless widow, took matters into her own, her own hands. Judah's wife had died, and he goes through a period of mourning over that. And then uh, Tamar uh, took matters into her own hands. She pretended to be a prostitute. We've already read this, so you know the story. Fully covered so she could not be recognized, waited for Judah to pass that way in the time of harvest. Offered him herself to him, took his signet, his cord, and his staff. She's a savvy woman. She knows what she's doing. Until he could arrange to have a goat sent to pay for services. He essentially gave her his identity. Kent Hughes, in his uh, work on, on uh, Genesis says it was his license and social security number. (laughs) That's what she got. And when he sent the goat to get his personal items back, no prostitute. Nobody. She's vanished into thin air. But she's now pregnant by her father-in-law. What was an act of prostitution and adultery and incest, all in one. He has no idea what a mess he's gotten in. Oh, my. So much we could say about this in the sexual anarchy of our day. Sex is a game an urge to be satisfied on a whim apart from the covenant of marriage, no concern for the consequences of sin except to somehow somehow figure a way to cover it up. In the 21st century, I, I, I could not believe this would happen in America, but uh, that shows what happens. You put too much hopes in the nations of this world. But... Uh, I could not imagine that we would be so committed to perfecting and celebrating human dysfunction that we would lose the ability to know the difference between a man and a woman. The most fundamental distinction in Genesis 1, the most fundamental distinction, he created them equal but distinct as male and female. To affirm a term I'd never even heard of five years ago, the gender binary. But in fact, that's what this means. There's male and female. Two sexes, not three, four, five, or more to be invented and more to come. But we're his image bearers, equal image bearers in two sexes. That is foundational to who we are We are made for complementary relationships expressed sexually in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Oh, it's a hard, hard word for our day. But it's good news. Nineteen days from now, if we live that long, Linda and I will have been married 50 years. 
Now, I know that it's hard to believe anybody looking as young as me could have been married for 50 years, and, and especially as young as her, but it's true. Well, we don't know where the years went. It's not always been easy. I'm not easy to live with, uh, but we understood from the beginning, even in our immaturity as 21-year-old kids, we understood on that day in 1972 that we were entering into an inviolable one-flesh covenant until death. And we dare not compromise that most foundational principle from creation that sex and marriage are not inventions of man, but the way sex and marriage is expressed is essential for a good society, good for those who are married and those who are single. This plan of God, this covenant of marriage. It's good for children and families. It honors God to live out what he created. So contrast this Jacob-Tamar sordid relationship with the account of Joseph's moral uprightness and sexual purity in the next chapter. I won't unpack that for you, but, but where... Joseph refused the relentless pursuit of Potiphar's wife. Out of principle, godly principle. But that's next week. Back to Genesis 38, how could anything good come out of such a mess? The next thing, though, we see is hints. I'm not sure I want to call it all-out repentance, but I think it gets there. Judah's repentance. Uh, the so-called prostitute disappeared. She couldn't be found to give her the payment of a goat for her services, but she had Judah's signet and cord and staff, his driver's license and his social security number. She had them. Judah had no idea what was coming. The trap was set. And it was about to spring. Let's continue Genesis 38, 24 to 26. After three months, or about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. He's ready to judge her for her sin. He's clueless about his own. Not ready to face his own. But she's ready for that. As she was being brought out to be burned. As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. The signet, by the word, the word signature comes from that. This is, it really is identity. The, the, the signet ring, this doesn't mention the ring, but the signet is that stamp that says this is truly me that have made this agreement. She brings out the signet. She says, please identify, whose are these? By the man to whom these belong. 
I am pregnant. Please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah was caught, exposed by his own hypocrisy. And so there's some hope now for this man, messed up as he is. He identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, he recognized that he'd lied to her. And then he treats her as a common prostitute with no, no sense of shame in doing that. And he did not know her again. But here's the key verse. Well, at this point it is, she is more righteous than I. Well, I tell you, until we start seeing ourselves with honesty and integrity, because we can point at each other and say, oh, he did this, she did this, until we look in the mirror and say, I did this, I said this, I thought this, you're more righteous than I. Just the beginning, though, of Judah being forced to uh, face his sin by the hand of God as you turn to the return to the story of Joseph, and I'll leave the details to your pastor. I promised him I wouldn't steal his thunder, but, but when you get to these chapters, as the brothers later go to Egypt to seek food and, and meet their brother again, but he's an Egyptian now. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian haircut. He's become a man instead of a boy, and they don't recognize him, but he knows who they are right away. And they meet him again, and they bow before him, just as he dreamed. <laughs> and Joseph kind of plays with him. Demands that the youngest brother must come back with him the next time. Don't, you're not going to see my face again unless you bring your younger brother. Well, they, they'd ask, he'd ask some questions. He's, he's asking these subtle questions. They don't pick up on it, but he wants to know, is your father alive? And you know, he's trying to catch up on family news without uh, betraying his own identity. And, and Judah convinces Jacob that Benjamin must be, must be allowed to go back because they're out of food. And, and then, horror of horrors, Joseph puts the pressure on even more, sells them the food, puts the money in the sacks again, and puts his gold cup in Benjamin's sack. Brings him back. And now, Benjamin is the criminal, and he must be held. And Judah breaks. Judah breaks. God has found out, uncovered the guilt of your servants. And Judah pours it all out before Joseph, still not knowing to whom he's speaking. He said, please, please, our, this is going to kill our father. He's already lost one son, his favorite, and, 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 and this is his full brother, and it'll kill him if he loses this one too. Let me take his place. And he offered himself as a substitute sacrifice to be held in Benjamin's place. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a, this is chapter 44, verse 3, as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. And just as the dam of guilt breaks in this pouring out of emotion on the part of Judah, that's what also breaks the dam of emotions built up in Joseph as he then reveals himself to his brothers. Is there a more emotional 
text in the Old Testament than that picture of the brothers? How many things did Judah do that he got away with? (laughs) Did he get away with selling his brother into slavery? (laughs) Not hardly. Did he get away with lying to Tamar and abandoning her? Did he get away with paying for sex to a supposed prostitute? Did he get away with condemning her to death and hiding his own guilt? No. This is a harder question. How much suffering did he endure as a consequence? The the guilt of selling Joseph, I don't know. It must have dogged him. It must have ate on him for years. His conscience watching the grief and suffering was Father Jacob. I, I don't know if that's... Maybe he was so hard he didn't feel that, but I suspect he might have been pretty miserable about this. And, and, and so what did he get away with? Nothing. What do you get away with? It's so funny, isn't it, to watch your kids, to, to think they've got you totally fooled, and then you know all the time what's going on. Well, until a certain level, and then they actually do pull it over on you, and you don't have a clue. What do you think you're getting away with? The Bible says, Numbers 32, 23, the words of Moses, be sure that your sin will find you out. Hebrews 4, 13, I used to call, call this the scariest verse in the Bible. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is naked, exposed, uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, as much as we fear being exposed, it's an act of God's grace when our sin is exposed. Praise God that he gives us a conscience. Praise God when our conscience is hardened that he breaks that down and forces us to face ourselves and him honestly. Because it's through brokenness and repentance that we get blessed relief. So don't hide your sin. It's killing you. Repent of it. Confess it. Turn from it. Make things right with that person that you've sinned against, that you've cheated, that you've abused, that you've insulted. Be reconciled to those you've sinned against. Be released from that self-made prison of a guilty conscience. By confession, by repentance. Well, we need to land this plane, don't we? But we're not to the best part yet, so let's move to that and then we'll close. Even in the shameless act of prostitution and incest, and this is not to be justified in the least. Oh, well, it worked out okay. No, 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 no. Don't go there. Don't mock God because he is gracious, because he's kind. But God worked through the sins of Judah and Tamar to provide an heir. No longer an anonymous consequence of sin, it is an heir. So look at verse 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand 
And the midwife took <laughs> the details, the details of the Bible. One, uh, one hand, put out his hand, and she tied a, a red string to it, saying, this one came out first. This is the firstborn. He's marked. He's identified. But as he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called breach or breakout, Perez in the language. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, the evidence that he's the, the true firstborn. Well, was he or not? Saying, I was first, he pushed me. Just like little kids, although they started earlier than most. And his name was called Zerah, scarlet or bright. And so like Jacob and Esau, after they were born, the second takes precedence over the first, but Perez doesn't wait for that. Perez, who's to be second born, pushed his brother out of the way and becomes the first born. So which is it? It's, it's hard to say. The point is God chooses not according to man's inheritance laws, according to the norms of society, but by his sovereign choice. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Perez over Zerah, Ephraim over Manasseh. These boys are cousins with each other. David over seven older brothers. Just a kid. He can't be God's choice. So he was. Solomon over nine older brothers. Now why? Where is this going? Because this isn't about Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Perez and Ephraim or David or Solomon. This is about another specially chosen one, a son to come, Judah's son, God's son, Jesus. So let's turn as we close to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, 8 to 12. By this time, Jacob and his family had been in Egypt for 17 years. Jacob knew that it was his time to die. He's 147 years old. He got to Egypt at 130. He's already old. He calls his sons to give them his blessing, which is really more of a prophecy. And after all the misery that Judah has brought on his father, here's what his father Jacob says to Judah. And it's kind of ironic when you think about the Joseph Peace and then the Judah peace and how they parallel and overlap each other. But Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares arouse, arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Take note of that. It's plural. There's a reason. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Pastor Curtis can unpack all that for you later. But Jacob reveals here that through Judah will come the one who is identified in Revelation 5, verse 5, as the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff 
from between his feet. And Jesus, Revelation 19, comes riding on the white horse with all the evidence, the one who has given his life on the cross for our sins, become the ultimate substitute sacrifice, now comes again as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lion of Judah, the scepter shall not depart. And so Judah becomes the leading tribe, the tribe of kings, a distinct nation. Jerusalem as its capital, the name Yehudi, Jew, is introduced in late in Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That's when the, 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 the people of Israel began to be called Jews. Uh, Yehudi, uh, Greek, Eudaios, the German, the insulting in the Holocaust era, Juden, English, Jew. In the latter part of the Old Testament, the primary designation for the descendants of Jacob Jew comes from Judah. From David on, God promises, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. One more little evidence of grace. Tamar, this Canaanite girl, Widowed, abandoned, threatened with burning. Whatever happened to her? Oh, there's another girl later named Tamar that's another story. But what happened to this Tamar? Please turn to Matthew chapter 1. We find her in the first chapter of the New Testament. Remember how this section started? These are the generations of Jacob. The New Testament starts, these are the generations of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, these first words of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, no, another genealogy so boring. No, 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 no. Stick with me here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by who? Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And then we're going to skip to the end, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. Interesting, those two names come in right at the end of genealogy, thousands of years later. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called the Christ. God's promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for 
Jews. It's not just for the tribe of Abraham, but for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Nobody's left out. That's why missions is so important. All the nations have to be reached. The, all the ethnicities is really what that means, not countries. And as a down payment on that promise, God did not fulfill the promise with pure Jewish blood. That's not the issue. But also through a Canaanite girl named Tamar, a Jericho prostitute named Rahab, a Moabite woman named Ruth, and the woman whose husband was murdered to cover up adultery. And you look at that text, was this adultery on her part or a rape? Bathsheba. These four flawed women joined Mary in the bloodline and genealogy of Jesus Christ who died for sinners, including you and me. One, one closing little story. Um, Christmas this year, our youngest daughter gave us, uh, Linda and me, 23andMe kits. You know what that is? <laughs> They're DNA kits. You can find out a uh, little bit more about your heritage. and not sure what I think about it, but uh, they were gifts of our daughter. We filled the little vials and sent them in, and now thousands of people are claiming to be my cousins and want to get acquainted. Ah, no. I found out that I'm 99.4% British, Irish, and German, so I have deeply barbarian and idolatrous roots. <laughs> Praise God that the gospel reached those barbarians in the north, or I'd be lost. No hint of uh, Asian heritage, no hint of Native American DNA, no hint of African DNA, no hint of Jewish DNA. I was kind of disappointed in that. I, I'd like to be a little more interesting than, than what I am, but it's just what I have. Simple farm boy from Kansas, can't expect much. But if God welcomes Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba into his family, even to give a bit of their DNA to the incarnate Son of God. Maybe there's a place for me. Indeed, there is, for through these girls, God brought about a great thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Through the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, I don't think you expected me to get to John 3.16 from Genesis 38. But there we are. There we are. Yeah. Let's pray. Oh, God, as our sister said earlier, what a, what a, a thrill to know that you can take, you are so good, and you can take the bad things and turn them for good. And, and you took some really bad things in, in the life of Abraham and Jacob and Judah and David and, 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 and turned them for good to maintain the 
promise that really starts in Genesis 3 and, and bring into fulfillment in Jesus. So thank you that we can celebrate that today. You're so good. You're so gracious. May we be impelled even more to share the good news with the world. It's so hurting. It's so burdened with guilt, consequences of sin. Oh God, may the freedom of Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, be introduced to them that they might come to know him. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.